is B.C. from Portland, Oregon. This program is made possible by supporters like me, and the easiest way for you to support the show right now is to leave a five-star review in the iTunes store. Also money. Money is good. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Young Turks, the Tom Hartman program, On the Media, the Black Agenda Report, the David Pakman Show, the Majority Report, and comedian Lee Camp. Two quick notes from me. First, police use of force rules and training standards are set by your local government. When police are not held accountable for excessive force, those standards are often part of the reason. Second, turning every police officer into a mobile surveillance camera has upsides and downsides. It was the summer of 1989. Jonathan Fleming and his family left their New York home and headed for Disney World in Orlando, Florida. This is not a word problem. I know it sounds like one. Mm. On vacation, he accumulated seemingly insignificant things, plane tickets, a few postcards, and a hotel receipt for an $81.92 phone bill, which he says he slipped into his pocket. That receipt was reportedly still in his pocket when police arrested him for the murder of a friend, Daryl Black Rush, who was shot to death in Brooklyn on August 15, 1989, in what authorities suggested was a dispute over stolen money. That receipt was the time stamp, was time stamped about five hours before the shooting, showing he was more than a thousand miles away at the time. But that receipt was never given to his attorney and never presented at his trial. Fleming was convicted and sentenced to 25 years to life. Just a few months shy of a parole hearing, a New York judge on Tuesday vacated Fleming's conviction after prosecutors uh, determined that he was innocent. After serving 24 years and eight months in prison for a crime he never committed, Fleming, now 51, walked out of the Brooklyn courtroom. Oh, I'm for the electric chair. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. Aren't you guys for the electric chair? You know, I spent some time as a prosecutor, and you know what they teach you uh, during training is that your job is to not get a conviction. Your job is to further the interest of justice. And if you have any exculpatory information, you have to turn that over to the to the defense. You have to. That's your job. Um, and you know, when I was a DA, what I did was I never excused anyone from the jury pool. Um, because people like to cherry pick the jury and stack it in their favor so they can get conviction. I, I, I thought that was wrong. I thought that if I was going to take a man's or, or a woman's uh, liberty away, I should prove that case beyond a reasonable doubt in front of anyone, from anyone. And I'm not going to cherry pick the, a jury and stack it in my favor. So I, ne- I don't understand prosecutors who do this. I just don't understand it. Yeah. Because getting that conviction, how do you live with yourself? Yeah. I mean, my, I feel bad if I make a bullshit call on the basketball court. Like, like, oh, Dave didn't really foul me, but I I caught a foul. I shouldn't have done that. How do these guys live with putting an innocent person in jail for 25 years? And knowing that the person who's still out there is still out there. You got a free pass. And this this is why I I just can't agree to the death penalty, because this happens far too often. this, This story happens all the time, and I and I met uh, I met a guy here in California. He, he spent uh, he spent 20 years on death row, and and he was he was finally released. and And he told me uh, so he went away at the age of uh, at the age of 17 or 18, and he came out uh, when he was 38, 37, 38. And he told me that when he was in prison, he had this mission in life to clear his name and get out, and he finally did. And then, and then, you know, the first moments were, you know, just amazing overwhelming. and overwhelming and wonderful. But then he said, 
dealing with day-to-day -day life, having missed 20 years yeah. of it, like he doesn't know how to do... It's a time machine. Yeah, he doesn't know how to do little things like he does, he's never taken money out of an ATM machine before, he doesn't know how to order pizza. Uh, uh, and, it's, it's, and, you know, just looking at the way kids interact, yeah. he's not a date, and you know, he missed college. He, he, it's, his life has been robbed. And, and same with this man. I mean, he went away. I mean, he's 51 now. Yeah. So he spent his, the best years of your life behind bars for, for a crime he didn't commit. Yeah. yeah. They did say, you know, the family did stick up for him and they said, no, they're a bunch of liars. And he could have had time, technically, to fly from Orlando to New York, pop the guy, and, and get back on a plane. Yeah. 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 You know, um, I was at a party recently, Steve, when I was talking with Barry Sheck, who's the head yeah. of the Innocent um, Project. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he really liked my show and he thought I was funny. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you gave me a decent segue there, I think, accidentally. Barishak had something to do with the O.J. Simpson trial, didn't he? He, he was, yes, he was, the, he was yes. a defense attorney? Yes, he was part of the defense team so working on the DNA evidence. His, yeah. The Innocence Project, where they take DNA and they go to the death row and they exonerate people. And every time they, they try, they exonerate someone. So they do this also with law students, right? Every mm -hmm. time a law student class would go and try to find uh, somebody on death row who didn't deserve they do. You're yeah. able to do it. So the reason I was going to bring up the O.J. Simpson thing is because what you said about the attorneys I think is interesting because we always think of defense attorneys. People always talk about defense attorneys that know that they're defending killers. You know what I mean? Like those guys, Cochran right. and Kardashian and whoever else it was, they knew they were defending O.J. and they knew that he did it. And we always wonder about their ethics. But we never think of the prosecutor's ethics that does something like this. That's really never crossed my mind before, that a prosecutor could somehow have evidence to clear someone and yeah. still do it. Yeah. It's actually far, it seems far more perverse, yeah. actually, than the so defense attorney. I, yeah. I believe O.J. is guilty. I believe he did it. However, I believe that having a vigorous defense team that gets him off is a price we pay to have a better justice system overall. Because if they didn't do that, the prosecutors would run roughshod. It's just human nature. They'll start taking more shortcuts, cut more corners, and we'll have more and more stories like this man. What is his name? Uh, Jonathan Fleming. We'll have more stories of Jonathan Fleming being locked away and, and, and the keys thrown away. Look, how many other people are out there? Who are suffering you know, the same right. and by the way, OJ not, got not every innocent person is rescued out of prison. Yeah. But also, I, obviously, I agree that we need yeah. these uh, sets of norms to defend our democracy and freedom and all that. Um, but I just think it's interesting that we never think of the prosecutors right. no, doing it the other right. way. Yeah. We Absolutely. always think it's the defense attorneys that are doing it. Jury nullification. This is over on DemocraticUnderground.com, uh, and they reprinted an article by uh, a, a segment of it. N2 Doc posted it over on DU by Joe Mazingo, Mazingo and uh, Julie Shermans watched warily as the judge asked prospective jurors whether they or anyone close to them had a card for medical marijuana. Ten hands lifted. A third of the jury pool. 
Julie was the uh, assistant U.S. attorney who was prosecuting a guy who ran a dispensary. And she's going, oh, you know, word you can't say on the air. And, uh, oh, rats. And what is happening is increasingly juries are realizing that they have the right of what's called jury nullification. If you are on a jury... You not, you know, the judge is going to tell you that your job is to decide the case based on the facts before you. But the actual law in the United States, established way back in the founding era and maintained to this day, the actual law is that if you're on a jury, you can not only judge the facts, you can play Supreme Court, you can judge the law. You have to do it based on your conscience. Jury nullification, here's a, a classic definition. It's a sanctioned doctrine of trial proceedings wherein members of a jury disregard either the evidence presented. You can say, yeah, that guy sold that guy some pot. I don't care. I'm not going to convict him. You can disregard the evidence or the instructions of the judge. In other words, you can become, the the juror can be you as a juror can determine both fact and law. You can be your own Supreme Court when you're on a jury. This is called jury nullification. And most people in America do not know this. Prosecutors don't want you to know it. Judges don't want you to know it. If you talk about knowing it, they will exclude you from the jury pool and anybody who heard you talking about it. And I'm not suggesting that you should use your knowledge of this as a way to get out of jury duty. If anything, you should go for jury duty. And if, you know, very often, I'd say probably, you know, 90% of the time or more, juries are, you know, they have a case before them where somebody actually did some horrible thing and the law is appropriate. You know, somebody beat up somebody, somebody shot somebody, somebody robbed somebody at gunpoint. You're not going to nullify that law. You're not going to ignore the facts in the case. You're going to find the guy guilty and send him to jail. You have, I mean, you know, that's the appropriate thing to do. But if it's a if it's a case of, you know, it's one of those eight times more black people are arrested and convicted of possessing marijuana than white people, if it's a case like that, Black guy who got busted with a couple of joints because he was in a stop and frisk. If I was on that jury, I would say, A, we're going to ignore the evidence, and B, we're going to say that we don't want to enforce the law. Not guilty. Let him out. And I would inform everybody else in the jury room that you have this right. And if you don't believe it, ask the judge. He'll tell you. He must. Now, you know, some judges might try to declare, declare a mistrial or something, but I just don't think they can get away with it. I mean, they're, they're, so so here's the headline from this article that's uh, reprinted over at Democratic Underground. Jury nullification becoming an issue in pot prosecutions. Increasingly across the United States, jurors who know what I just told you are saying, no, I'm not going to send that guy to jail or that woman. Not going to happen.
Avoid inconvenience, said the judge in the Pascal Abador case. Travelers should simply leave whatever they don't want searched at home. That wasn't an option for the anonymous Jane Doe, a 54-year-old woman from New Mexico, whose privacy was violated right down to the viscera. She's being represented by ACLU lawyer Laura Schauer-Ives, who says her client was pulled aside for a secondary search while entering El Paso from Juarez and sent to a lineup. Then a CBP dog jumped on her, which Ives says was the impetus for what happened next. If you're squeamish, we advise you to turn your radio down for a few minutes because the description of this search is necessarily graphic. The agents asked her to remove her pants and to crouch down, spread her genitalia, and cough. They asked her to bend forward. They shone a flashlight on her anus and visually inspected that area. They then asked her to lean backwards, holding herself up with, with her back arms, and they did the same to her vagina. They found no drugs, so as Jane Doe tells it, this is what happened next. She was handcuffed and sent to a local medical center for more invasive measures. She asked if they had a search warrant. They said they didn't need one. They handcuffed her to a bed, made her ingest a laxative, and observed the inevitable result. Still no drugs. They x-rayed her. Still no drugs. At this point, Laura Ives says her client was in tears. Still handcuffed to the bed, she was told by a doctor to spread her legs. He first inserted a speculum into her vagina and observed visually. He then put his fingers or hand in her vagina and his other hand on top of her abdomen and rubbed in between. He did the same with a rectal exam. While this is happening, the residents are watching, the agents are watching, the door is open. There's absolutely no privacy given to her. And also not the general kind of comforting direction that a physician usually provides a woman in, in say, like a gynecological exam where they say, I'm going to... I'm going to do this. This will be cold. Right. There was none of that. It was order after order with them violating her, and she felt sexually assaulted. Next on the list, according to the complaint, a CAT scan. And just like the search at the port of entry, the forced bowel movement, x-ray and cavity exams, it revealed nothing. After six hours of invasive searches, Jane Doe was free to go. Then the agents told her that if she signed a consent form, they would ensure that the hospital didn't charge her. But if she refused, the hospital would send her a bill. Refuse, she did, and send her a bill, they did, just shy of $6,000. A nurse told her that her ordeal was pretty routine. Not to Jane Doe. Jane Doe is not unlike many other victims of sexual assault. She's unable to leave the house without fear. Whenever she recounts this event, she cries. She's unable to be intimate with her husband. And the people who are supposed to protect us, physicians and law enforcement, perpetrated this. The ACLU filed suit on her behalf against the agents, the hospital, and the doctors, claiming that her Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment rights had been violated. 
Ibe says that while it's true that there are diminished constitutional protections at the border, this case is outrageous enough to shock the conscience of the court. With every search, they had more and more information that whatever suspicion they originally had was mistaken. This search done in our names, I can't imagine it would ever be worth it. This shouldn't happen to any other of our fellow citizens. Laura Shower Ives is an attorney with the ACLU of New Mexico. CBP in El Paso gave us this statement, quote, CBP stresses honor and integrity in every aspect of our mission, and the overwhelming majority of CBP employees and officers perform their duties with honor and distinction, working tirelessly every day to keep our country safe. We do not tolerate corruption or abuse within our ranks, and we fully cooperate with any criminal or administrative investigations of alleged misconduct by any of our personnel on or off duty. We can't let this thing go on. We must protect ourselves from harm. The law enforcers in our country abuse their power and authority. We need them to protect and serve us. Don't need them to harm and abuse us. We need them to treat us with respect and be treated fair is what we expect. Do we have the justice system on the cards that we're living in? Can you get a fair trial in this country if you're poor and you have no money? Those men to protect and serve us, they abuse and oppress us. They block the Constitution. It's time. Several municipalities throughout the country have some program known as the Automatic License Plate Reader Program. And what it does is it puts these cameras on police cruisers. And as cops are driving around the city, they take uh, images of all license plates that are in the area. Then they collect that information. And who knows what they do with it? Apparently, they say that this is a really important tool in fighting crime. Now, the ACLU... The ACLU wanted more information on this because they feel that, hey, this is something that a citizen should know about. You guys are public uh, employees. Our tax money goes toward paying your salary, so we should know what you're doing to keep us safe. Well, it turns out that the LAPD has a really interesting defense and an interesting excuse for why they refuse to give information to the ACLU. They say, hey, you know what? Every single car in Los Angeles is under investigation. And since it's under investigation, we are protected from giving you any information. Because remember, ongoing investigations mean that cops get to keep the information without giving it to reporters or the ACLU. Right. It's confidential. Yeah. Um, okay. So as we had with the NSA issue, here we have, uh, we're all guilty until proven innocent. We're all under investigation in L.A. That's why our license plates have to be collected. Now, let me also call bullshit in a different way here. Mm -hmm. You're telling me cops have these cars that drive around with the cameras, and they record all the license plates, and that when there is a crime in that area, they're going to go back and review all those tapes, and they're going to try to figure out the license plate, mm -hmm. and then they're going to track it down. Yeah, they got us working around the clock, man. So let me. Leads. I don't believe that for a second. Let me jump in because, um, you know, there's obviously software connected to this, and it's similar to what Facebook has with facial recognition software. So with, with uh, license plates, let's say that there's a missing car, right? Someone has stolen a vehicle, and they want to find that vehicle. They can go through their database, and they can type in the license plate number, and based on that recognition software, it'll pop up, and they can determine where that car has been and they can go and they can retrieve that car so I do believe that there is some legitimacy to it however will this uh, technology be abused 
Absolutely. Let me give you an example um, of one thing that happened recently to someone I know that I thought was really interesting. Whether or not you consider this abuse is up to you, but I thought that it was a little shady. So apparently, um, my friend was about one week overdue on car registration. Mm -hmm. So when you're overdue, you don't have the, the right sticker on your license plate. You guys know that. And so um, apparently, his license plate uh, was captured in this data. The police had this data on him. So one day, he gets out of work or wherever he was, and he notices that there's a citation on his car. He has a ticket. And he's like, how the hell did they give me this ticket? And then he realized it was through this license plate program. No, I hate this program. Can't stand it. How many murder cases have they solved through this program? Uh, I would be shocked if it was anything other than zero, okay? So on serious crimes, are they going to actually, you know, go through the database and put in the license plate, et cetera? No, does it help them standardize catching stolen cars? I hope so, and that would be a legitimate purpose. But is that worth the abuse that's going to come along with it? I don't think so. And it helps target people much easier if you wanted to target them. They're obviously covering it up in the most ridiculous way by saying we're all under investigation. And look, finally, I'm not willing to pay that price. I don't want Big Brother to capture everything we do, and if you're ever out of line for a second, your registration was overdue by a week, and here comes Big Brother, and he's going to give you a ticket, and he's watching you at all times. Right. I hate that. That's not what I call freedom. Okay, so let me jump in, because if... if you don't see the issue with this, draw parallels to what the NSA is doing, right? So the NSA is indiscriminately collecting information on all of us. We don't have to be convicted of a crime. We don't even have to be, there's no probable cause, no suspicion of wrongdoing. It doesn't matter. The NSA collects it. And there's an issue there because we're supposed to be innocent citizens that have to be proven guilty. And in this case in Los Angeles, it's the same issue, right? We haven't done anything wrong, but the government is still watching us. They're still collecting all this information on us. And honestly, I don't see this as as an effort to fight crime in a more efficient way. I see this as a way of making more money for the city, right? Yes. Because look, we want to we want to issue more tickets that brings in more money, especially yep. in places like California where we def desperately need that tax revenue. Um, so I, I, this is no, a bad idea. You nailed it, Anna. You've never been more correct than you were there. It's not like they're uh, trying to track down the police commissioners, you know. Uh, ex-wife and whether she's sleeping with somebody, etc. Although, by the way, if you think that abuse isn't going to happen with some cops where they track their lovers, their wives, or the people, or their wives' lovers, you're crazy. Of course they're going to do that, right? But that's not the main reason they do it. It's for the revenue. Anna's 100% right. It's tickets, tickets, tickets. They're not solving murders, rapes, etc. on this. They're doing it for revenue off of us. And, and by the way, that gets distributed in the most uh, unfair way there is. That hits usually the poor and the middle class and takes a bigger percentage of their uh, income than it does for the rich, right? And so it's a regressive taxation in a way. And look, you know that old stupid cliche of like, oh, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, you've got nothing to worry about. If that's true, how would you like a cop following you around 24-7, just peering over your shoulder? Yeah. Like, I mean, that's creepy, man. That's yeah. unnerving, and it's not freedom. And they know where you are at all times because they also track down the location and the time. So they know exactly where you are, what you're doing, and I, I see that as a huge problem. And by the way, who do you think pays for those cameras, those fancy cameras on those police cruisers? We yeah. do. <laughs> so yeah. we pay them to spy on us. It's amazing. I'm only 23.
years old and gold. Never owned a weapon, so what the fuck they stressing for? I go for walks in the wilderness wondering, do the trees see? And what the fuck do they want with me? If they do, man, I'm tripping. Sipping on some brew, cause reality is cuckoo. Rewind the tape, that's his face. He was in the wrong place, running social. We got it all here, he's local. This is what he knows, and this is what he owes. Here's where he goes to buy his clothes. Man, if they really want to run down on me, they should ask. I'm a person, nothing to hide but my ass. For certain, I caught them peeping and keeping. Count up my actions, what the fuck they tracking? What the fuck they tracking? Prisoners held for 10 years and more in solitary confinement at California's infamous Pelican Bay Supermax have won the right to challenge, as a class, the constitutionality of their treatment. A federal judge in Oakland has allowed five of the inmates to also represent 500 others who've spent a decade in isolation, as well as 1,100 additional prisoners who are confined in solitary for supposed gang membership. Lawyers for the Center for Constitutional Rights are handling the class action suit. The question they're posing is simple. Does 10 years in solitary, and even longer for dozens of inmates at Pelican Bay, amount to unconstitutionally cruel and unusual punishment? Nowhere else in the world is solitary confinement practiced on anything like the scale of the United States, where 80,000 men and women are held in isolation on any given day. That's significantly more than the total prison populations of France or Germany or Japan, a solitary confinement prison nation within the vast American gulag. Any sane and moral person would agree that solitary confinement for weeks and months, much less years and decades, is a uniquely ghastly form of torture that rips at the essence of what makes us human. It is the ultimate sentence of social death. The Pelican Bay inmates' lawyers believe the recent ruling will, for the first time, force the state of California to defend its draconian policy on its merits. If 12 years a slave is a horror, how should one describe 12 or 20 years of solitary suffering? And what do you call the people who enforce and defend such sadistic savagery, men with such hatred for their own species that they would torment fellow humans endlessly? According to the lawsuit, solitary confinement as practiced at Pelican Bay is such a barbarity it renders California an outlier in this country and in the civilized world. If it were not for the two hunger strikes staged by inmates over the last three years, the so-called civilized world would remain blissfully ignorant of the crimes routinely perpetrated against captive human beings by U.S. civil servants and dues-paying members of the Guards Union. Under the California criminal justice system, solitary confinement is much more than just a punishment or a security measure. It is a process. For the 1,100 inmates in solitary at Pelican Bay because of alleged gang associations, the process is designed to turn them into snitches or liars who finger innocent men. 
Release from solitary is possible only if one admits to gang affiliation and implicates other inmates, who will then be put through the same process. The jailer's roles are identical to those of the Nazi Gestapo, who tortured suspected members of the resistance until they provided the names of their comrades, or of people they hardly knew, who would then become part of the same torture process. Sergeant Bo Bergdahl says he was tortured by his captors in Afghanistan, locked alone in a cage for weeks, maybe a month. In Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where the prisoners exchanged for Bergdahl spent the last 12 years, the maximum isolation time allowed at a stretch is 30 days. So, it seems that by both the standards of the Taliban and Guantanamo, Pelican Bay, California is the deepest level of hell. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford. Can't even escape the reason I was here Was never communicated clear Two minutes in this place appeared Like I had waited years When the lights came on I was bathing in bladed tears Cause the room had commandeered All of my greatest fears This ain't Hades Cause it ain't hiding I don't see devils I saw three different escalators That led to three levels I stepped on the first one Making sure to be careful Saw fluid filled lines on the walls That looked like blood vessels That first floor was called confessional For 24 hours straight They questioned and pressured you To express the truth Everything I did, every evil act was tracked on a sheet of black stone. I had to reenact and read it back. Painfully, I suffered as I heard people applaud. I saw every face of every individual that I scarred. Childhood to teenage to adult years. Each woman that ever shed tears over me vindictively appeared. Who I hurt bad despite them loving me. And left them to suffer without the slightest concern for their recovery. I looked at all the people I dissed. Begged the torture to cease and desist. Couldn't leave, they had shackled my feet and my wrists. Oh, this criminalization of everybody I wanted to get to. This, this, the, the AFL-CIO has decided to, uh, you know, abolish the prison industrial complex. They're pointing out, they and the National Urban League, that many employment applications and many applications for credit now, or even to open a bank account, have a little box on them that say, have you ever been arrested or convicted of a crime? And if you say yes, it diminishes the possibility that you're going to be employed or get credit or, in some cases, even be able to open a simple checking account. The city of, De of uh, the District of Columbia, D.C., today put into effect new marijuana regulations because while the district is about 50-50 white and black, and white people in the district are uh, actually a little more likely to smoke marijuana than black people in the District of Columbia. The number of people who get arrested for marijuana in the District of Columbia is 800% more African-American than Caucasian, than white people. And so the, 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 the D.C. City Council said, we're going to put an end to this. This is a waste of police resources. This is a racist outcome. We're going to put an end to this. And so starting today, it's a $25 traffic ticket. Uh, it's not even a, it's a parking ticket. It's not even a parking ticket. Parking tickets in the city cost $100. It's a $25 ticket, basically, for possessing or smoking pot in, on your, you know, in your home, in private. 
it's still a $100 fine for doing it in public, and it's a, a little more serious criminal offense for doing it in public. And this is for possession of less than an ounce. Now, all that said, what about all the people who were arrested before for pot? This is, I mean, this is the, the majority of arrests in America now are for pot. I mean, we've, we're at a 40-year low for crime, which appears to be associated with taking lead out of our gasoline, by the way, 50 years ago. We're at a 40-year low for crime. Crime is lower than it's ever been in the United States. Well, not than it's ever been, but it's been, uh, crime is lower in the United States than it's been in my lifetime, than it's been in the, in the last half century. Our prisons should be emptying. But you've got private prison corporations that have contracts with the government that requires 90% occupancy. And the way they've been doing this is by stop and frisk and busting people for pot. There's been this controversial story here in New York City of a Staten Island man named Eric Garner, 43 years old, uh, overweight African-American man who had an interaction with police. He was selling untaxed or illegal cigarettes, and uh, cigarette taxes are very high here in New York City. Allegedly. Allegedly selling those. You have a very good point, Lewis. He was uh, being talked to for, for allegedly selling those cigarettes. And he was in, put in a chokehold by a police officer and subsequently died. We've been waiting for the autopsy to figure out whether the chokehold was or was not responsible for his death. And while the autopsy did state that his general physical health and overweight uh, uh, status contributed to his death, that the chokehold was responsible for his death, and thus it has been ruled a homicide. Now, this is a very important detail. It has been ruled a homicide from the point of view of the medical examiner. And what that means is that the death was caused by another individual. This is completely separate from the police officer being charged with a homicide. It is completely unrelated other than the fact that certainly you need the homicide from the medical examiner's point of view in order to get to a homicide uh, uh, situation legally. We don't yet know what is going to be the eventual uh, uh, result in terms of the police officer. The police officer has for now been stripped of his gun and badge, but we don't yet know what will happen. Here is a little bit of video of the chokehold incident. You should be able to hear Mr. Garner saying, that he can't breathe when he's in this chokehold. Take a look. I'm minding my business. Please just leave me alone. I told you the last time. Please just leave me alone. Hold on, hold on, Put your hand behind your back. 
So swarmed by police officers, you hear him saying he can't breathe, and uh, some here in New York City see this really as emblematic of the broader problem with police in New York City. Of course, we know about stop and frisk and its disproportionate application to minority individuals, even though it is not more likely that they are actually carrying drugs, as we found out about. And now we see an African-American man allegedly selling untaxed cigarettes, certainly not a violent crime, even if true. And we see the situation very quick, quickly escalate into a swarm of police officers, one with a chokehold. And now that chokehold, according to the medical examiner, responsible for Mr. Garner's death. We'll see where this goes, Lewis. I, I am not confident. We have, there's a very, very strong police union in New York City. We know that, uh, uh, that there are particularly egregious instances of police corruption here in New York City. I'm not making any predictions here. Uh, I can't make any predictions either, but I watched the whole video. The entire altercation was caught on camera. Um, he was complaining in the beginning about being harassed by police. Uh, it escalates. If he does resist, he was never violent. Uh, the police officer clearly has no idea how to properly use a chokehold. The whole thing is just a completely insane, total, total botch job by the police. Unfortunately, uh, this thing is just happening way too often. This is one of those situations where I say to myself, could there be more context that I'm missing, which would explain why this went exactly the way it should have gone, and I have a hard time even imagining situations that would explain that. weeks ago, I covered on this show the horrific story behind Eric Garner, who was the black man in Staten Island, who was choked by the NYPD, said he couldn't breathe while they were forcing him down to the ground in this chokehold, and ended up dying as a result, all because the NYPD believed he was selling Lucy's which are basically loose cigarettes. It's illegal to sell them, yes. Apparently, they did not find any on him. And regardless if to the fact they did or did not, is it really worth choking a man to death for? I, I think, again, uh, one of those rhetorical questions. Uh, no. No, yes. So this is big news. On Friday, a medical examiner ruled that Eric Garner was killed by neck compressions from the chokehold and the compression of his chest and prone positioning during physical restraint by police. A.K.A. Eric Garner's death by police chokehold has been ruled a homicide. The finding, according to Huffington Post, via the AP, 
increases the likelihood that the case will be presented to a grand jury to determine whether Officer Daniel Penteleo, who choked Garner out, or any other officers involved in the confrontation will face criminal charges. I'll say, I think someone should go to jail over this. A spokesman for the Staten Island DA said prosecutors were still investigating the death and awaited a full autopsy report and death certificate from the medical examiner. Federal officials are monitoring the investigation. A Department of Justice spokeswoman said, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio and Police Commissioner Bill Braddon have stated they will be completely looking into this, making sure these chokeholds, which are already against NYPD, the NYPD rulebook, don't happen. Uh, Bill de Blasio already met with community leaders to discuss this, in which Al Sharpton gave him one hell of a line, saying if your son Dante wasn't your son, again, Bill de Blasio's son is black, he would also be a candidate for an NYPD chokehold. Uh, Ramsey Orda, a friend of Garner's who videotaped the struggle uh, with police, said the medical examiner's ruling wasn't surprising on Friday. I knew that was the cause because I saw it, Ramsey Orta said. Now somebody should get charged. Now, I don't think Ramsey Orta was saying, uh, was, had himself in mind when he said someone should get charged, but that's exactly what happened. This is stunning to me because it's just a little bit too uh, convenient. For anyone who's hearing, following the story, that this just happened. Ramsey Orta, the man whose video you watched if you saw Eric Garner put in that NYPD chokehold and killed the one, the number one witness to this case was arrested on, on Staten Island on Saturday, blocks from the spot where Eric Garner was killed, charged with two counts of criminal possession of a weapon, a 25 caliber Norton semi-automatic handgun, that the officer said he tried to pass to a teenager on the sidewalk at 10 p.m. Now, this is a bit sketchy. I'm going to just leave it there. Uh, is it possible he was doing it? I guess if he was really stupid. But it's... I would really wonder here. I mean, especially when the police union officials are using this to say, look, this is one of the dangerous officers' uh, face. That guy filming with the camera, he could have been armed. Yeah. And this is also right after this has come out, that a 27-year-old woman, Roseanne Miller, who was seven months pregnant, was put in an NYPD chokehold. Are you ready for this? For illegal grilling. (sighs) Having a barbecue outside her home with her husband. I mean, are we real... Oh, by the way, she was black, in case you had any questions. Are we really going to defend this act? Are we really going to defend... NYPD using physical force 
force that has been shown to kill so have killed someone over things like Lucy's and having a barbecue. Really? Unbelievable. There's a problem that needs There's to be dealt with. There's a national yes. crisis of police abuse, and it needs to be addressed. We will, we will certainly be covering this more because it's not new, but it's, it's getting worse. the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, justice for Eric Garner. When the writing for this segment started, the murder of Eric Garner by the NYPD was the obvious topic. Since then, breaking news that Renisha McBride's killer had been convicted was botched by the Associated Press headline writers. The AP headline was, Suburban Detroit homeowner convicted of second-degree murder for killing woman who showed up drunk on porch. And Huff Poe tweeted, man who killed unarmed woman on porch found guilty. Huffington Post, problematic headline central, well, got it right. Right. And they didn't mention her name, but they still understood that unarmed woman being killed, that was the story. Not suburban Detroit, suburban homeowner killing, uh, shoots drunk woman. That's not, that's not the, that's not the framing. And it's not the framing because hello, she's a human being. Like, she was not just a drunk woman, a drunk girl. She was someone who was unarmed and murdered and killed in cold blood. And a young teen named Mike Brown was gunned down by police in Ferguson, Missouri. As you, as you heard in the upfront, uh, there was, uh, that was the uh, mother of, um, Michael Brown, a, uh, 18 year old who was shot, uh, in, um, in, in Missouri, uh, by, uh, unarmed by police officers. And it, I know you're like, well, wait, that already happened. You reported this already, but no. No, this is this is another one. Simply keeping up with the number of young, murdered black Americans and their treatment by the injustice system and the media is an impossible task. The hashtags, justice for Eric Garner, remember Renisha, and the latest, if they gunned me down, became a chorus of community expressing sorrow and rage over the past several days. If They Gun Me Down has been particularly powerful. People of color have posted side-by-side pictures of themselves with the hashtag, one, respectable at church school weddings etc the next to one with alcohol backwards hats revealing clothing and hamming it up for the camera the question is which of these would the media choose if the question is which of these would the media choose as the representation of me if i were shot by police hoodie or cap gown gang sign that's actually a peace sign or buttoned down with a tie Yisha Callahan writes at the root, If They Gun Me Down is not only a sad commentary on what it means to be black in America, but also shows that in order to have our own narrative correctly reported, we have to do the reporting ourselves. Following the slaying of Brown, various media outlets falsely reported that protesters were chanting, kill the police, but if you follow the social media accounts of those at the protest, they verified that the protesters weren't shouting, kill the police, but no justice, no peace. 
In New York, Eric Garner's death has officially been ruled a homicide, a painful death at the hands of an officer who wielded a deadly chokehold for the crime of selling untaxed cigarettes. Michael Denzel Smith writes at The Nation, quote, The motto can no longer be to protect and serve if that only applies to certain people. We can't cede the idea of crime prevention to an armed police force and then allow them the discretion to determine which crimes are worth preventing. The reality of policing in America is that it upholds a system of racism and oppression of the poor. There is no justice for Eric Garner or anyone else until that changes, unquote. Participate in the hashtags Justice for Eric Garner, Remember Renisha, and If They Gun Me Down. Better yet, just read and listen. Then sign on to the colorofchange.org letter demanding the Staten Island District Attorney Danielle Donovan, NYC Mayor Bill de Blasio, and Police Commissioner Bill Bratton prosecute Garner's killer. Additional conversations and petitions, including one from the White House's We the People site, are available in the show notes. The white supremacy power structure in this country is deadly. That doesn't change until more than a minority of us stand up and demand justice. Impressive news from Rialto, California, where two years ago they outfitted every police officer with small body cameras that recorded every interaction. And now the numbers are in. Use of force by the officers has fallen 60%, and complaints against officers is down nearly 90%. A funny thing happens when you turn video cameras on cops. They act morally, more empathetic. They're slower to anger and slower to beat the living snot out of a great-grandmother on her wedding day. What? It's never too old to get married. <laughs> it makes sense, because everybody acts differently under scrutiny. For example, right now, I have pants on. This is solely because there are cameras on me. No, no, I'm not. It's actually not true. I don't have pants on. But you get the point. And maybe it's time we put the scrutiny on the powerful, abusing their power, rather than on the rest of us. This is one of those great ideas happening in one city that should then be happening in every city. Another example of this is in Utah, where they calculated the cost of, the emer of emergency room and jail visits of each homeless person. It averaged over 16000 per year. But the cost to give each of those people their own apartment free of charge and a caseworker to help them get back on their feet only 11,000 a year so in order to save a great deal of taxpayer money Utah is giving every homeless person their own place chronic homelessness has decreased 74 percent over the past eight years and Utah is expected to end homelessness by 2015 we need to take great ideas and spread them throughout the country rather than just going oh Seattle passed a $15 minimum wage Whatever, Nirvana's overrated. <laughs> we should use our cities like a buffet of good ideas. Rialto's police cameras, Salt Lake City's homeless solution, Portland, Oregon's professional cuddlers, you know, Mobile, Alabama's 
uh, people movers, right? They're, they're, doing, they're doing very inventive things with, with moving large masses of people or people of large mass. We should take the great things from each city and spread it like jam or herpes, you know? Pretty soon we'll have nationwide herpes jam. Isn't that exciting? Which, by the way, never sells well in my farmer's market kiosk. Never does. I'm a renaissance man. I have many hobbies. Ideas go in and out of there, now point to your eyes. eyes. See ideas materialize and point to your feet. feet. March to the beat of a thought complete and point to your heart. heart. Feel the beat of a party Good ideas. As I've told you many times, the United States has one of the highest two incarceration rates in the world, along with North Korea. However, there are some U.S. states that have managed to significantly reduce their prison populations over the last 10 years, and we now have data about what the effect was on crime in those states. And it turns out that states that have most drastically reduced their prison populations over the last 10 years saw their crime rates decrease by significantly more than the national average. This is according to a new report by the Sentencing Project. The experiences of New York, New Jersey, and California demonstrate it is possible to achieve substantial reductions in mass incarceration without compromising public safety. That is according to the report. Between 1999 and 2012, state prison populations in all 50 states increased by about 10%. States continue to rely on drug war-type policies, harsh sentencing, mandatory minimums, etc. But New York and New Jersey simultaneously bucked the trend, each decreasing their prison population by 26% during the same period. Now, nationally, crime rates decreased during this period. But in New York and New Jersey, crime rates decreased significantly more than the national average. California saw a decrease of prison population of the, uh, to the extent of 23%. They also saw crime decrease by significantly more than the national average. Now remember, even with their reduced incarceration rates, all three of these states still have very high incarceration rates compared to any other industrialized nation. But let's think about this. Reduce incarceration crime goes down. Why might that happen? It actually makes total sense. We've talked about this before, Lewis, and it's similar to the effect of increasing the minimum wage, right? When you think of the effect on the community of a high incarceration rate, it's easy to see why crime would be high. If children have parents in prison, it is more likely that they will get involved in criminal activity and someday end up in prison. More crime. If, it, uh, if more people are in prison, it's more likely they will, some percentage of them, will become career criminals while in prison. They will become hardened, radicalized, use whatever term you want. And once out of prison, they will commit more crimes. At every step of the evaluation, it's obvious why more mass incarceration, particularly for nonviolent offenses, would actually lead to more crime in the long run, or in this case, a smaller reduction in crime. 
Right. Makes sense to me. And when we talk about how much money we're spending, too, uh, there are just so many reasons why um, why we should not have such a huge incarceration rate. No, that's actually the, the um, fiscal argument is an interesting one as well, which is if you have so many people in prison, the cost for that incarceration goes up and thus the amount of money available for other things goes down, including community initiatives that would reduce crime. And we could talk about what those are. There's any number of them. I mean, it's hard to even summarize. But in every single case, this makes perfect sense. So we, we clearly have determined that the policy of mass incarceration, the war on drugs, etc., doesn't reduce or deter crime. We've seen how it's not a fiscally conservative policy. And now we actually have evidence that a reduction in the rate of incarceration tends to have a positive effect on crime reduction. Uh, I, I don't know what else it's going to take to convince uh, certain elements of our society. I think it's not really an issue of being convinced by the facts. I think it's an issue of maintaining the prison, industrial, war on drugs, Wall Street complex. from San Diego. Um, I just listened to the White Privilege episode, and uh, I appreciate you getting to hear Dr. Reed's story in her own words. That was a story that I followed in real time, but it's one thing to, to read it in tweets, and another thing to hear it being told in her own voice. I think I listened to the show at the wrong time. I'm still pretty uh, pretty angry over, over Mike Brown's murder, but I think it ties in with the response I have to the show as a whole. I, I thought the, uh, the Young Turks clip brought up an interesting point. You know, it's a point that gets raised in a lot of places, but I don't think it ever really gets developed all the way through, especially if it's not on that clip. The point they raised was that our children's ages get scaled up in the eyes of society, that they're seen and treated as if they're older and more culpable than they are, and that explains in some way why uh, our children are mistreated by their schools and by law enforcement. I think the bigger picture is that the scaling works the other way, too. You know, every time we're patronized and analyzed, we're treated like we're younger and less capable and less mature than we are. So, and the word boy is a slur and come out of nowhere. I think it's easier to understand the first time of scaling. If you just need to know that people add four or five years to a kid's age, it's easier to understand why. They might think it's okay to try babies as adults or why police have been treating me like a, a potential menace to society just before I throw a mustache. In a way, uh, first time of scaling, which we can all understand, kind of contradicts the second, so I can understand why it might not be intuitive. But it's something to think about, and I do think about it a lot. Got a young son. Um, it keeps me up at night to think about all the ways that his mother and I have to scale his age up, even though what I really want to do is protect his childhood and not make it shorter. But they're preparing to live in a world where the school department's prison pipeline exists and where police won't value his life or his childhood as much as those of his non-black peers. Those things will have profound effects on his life before he can fully understand them. We talk a lot about it in our house, and I don't think that we ever really come up with any good solutions. I just don't know how to protect him and his childhood at the same time, but that's what I've been thinking about. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate what you do. Hi, my name is Karen, and I'm calling from Charlotte, North Carolina. I would just like to tell you guys thank you. Thank you for all that you do. I am a black woman, and when I found your podcast, you educated me on so many things in the black community. A lot of things I already knew. But when you give statistics and numbers and you show 
all me all this information, it helps me know that I'm not crazy and I'm not insane. And it's just something that I'm not making up as being a black woman. Also, I want to tell you, thank you for being the voice for the voiceless. Thank you for standing up for those that can't stand and those people that have given up in the fight. Uh, I just want to tell you guys thank you. Uh, because of you, you have helped inspire a lot of people. And I just want to tell you thank you because a lot of times people work hard and they grind and they don't realize what change and how big of a difference that they make in people's everyday life. So I just want to encourage you. I want to tell you to keep on doing what you're doing and know that there are people out here that are rooting, rooting for you and rooting for your causes. Again, my name is Karen, and I'm calling from Charlotte, North Carolina. And this is just a thank you message. Just thank you for doing all that you guys do. Have a good day, guys. Hey, my name is Scott. I'm an urban planner who works on Long Island. I'm calling about the clip you played from the David Tarkman show where Bill O'Reilly talks about being from Levittown, not growing up with a lot of money, and therefore not having white privilege. While the commentators rightly take him to task on his whole persona of being an angry white man and how that would be a detriment to his career, they missed an opportunity to point out some history that expressly proves O'Reilly is a recipient of white privilege. Levittown on Long Island, New York, is considered America's first suburb. It was a planned community, all built at one time in a factory construction method. All the houses also were sold at the same time, often to blue-collar workers who wouldn't have been able to afford property otherwise. The dirty secret about Levittown is that it was racially exclusive. Levitt would not sell to black, and every homeowner was required upon purchase of a home to sign a deed that restricted the property to only be sold and used by members of the Caucasian race. This is in 1947 through 1949, so it's pretty recent history. The Federal Housing Administration at the same time, which was uh, designed to ensure mortgages for the middle class, supported these racial covenants. Uh, and they also, at the same time, were developing a system known as redlining, where they refused to support minorities uh, in mortgages in inner-city minority areas. So, anyway, because of a bunch of structural barriers, we end up with the suburban middle class being predominantly white and, like Mr. O'Reilly, privileged to be able to grow, grow up in a nice home despite not having a lot of money. Thanks for the good work. I'm going to go write my five-star review now. Take care. Hey, James, Colin from Cleveland again. Um, I have to tell you, <laughs> I love Wade's voicemails. Um, I love how Wade was pointing out that his friend said, why would you listen to that liberal source? And as much as Wade and I would disagree probably on a lot of things, the one thing Wade and I agree on is being open-minded towards other people's views and actually trying to have a grown-up conversation. Which, Wade, this is where I hope I don't offend you. But you're liberal. <laughs> Liberals don't have a litmus test to make you a liberal like conservatives do. Like, oh, you can't want minorities to vote. You know, he, he reached out to black people like Fad Cochran, so he's not conservative enough. Liberals aren't like that, Wade. Liberals... Put it this way, if you look up liberal, just hit Siri on your phone and ask for the definition of liberal. From seven definitions of liberal, the first one is showing or characterized by broad-mindedness. It's that simple. That's what makes 
you if you want to call yourself liberal, don't call yourself liberal. But wait, you're progressive. And the sooner you realize that wanting progress and advancement is good, and as more as soon as more people understand that progress means the future, and you know, being you know, conserving, conserving, conserving means just hanging on to old ways. A lot more people would be a lot further along. So again, wait. I don't want to offend you by calling you progressive or liberal. Um, just understand that from me, I am meaning that as compliments, saying that you don't buy into the paradigm of thought of this side or that side. You're obviously a very forward, free-thinking person, and both sides, liberal and conservative, need more people like us. Jay, love your show. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So we just heard from Colin referring to uh, another regular caller, Wade, describing himself as a conservative and it just so happens I heard from Wade by email late last night, and I haven't had a chance to write back to him yet, but his email and uh, the advice I plan on uh, sending to him got me thinking about how it sort of relates in a strange way to today's episode and, and reminded me that the advice I would give to him, I would also give to literally everyone listening which is why I'm going to share it with you. So I'm going to back way up and explain what I mean by all of that. So Wade's email is actually a bit of a follow-up from a, a voicemail that he called in a few weeks ago. So you might have even heard it. He was calling in basically uh, talking about the distress he's been feeling over the news coming out of Iraq. He fought as a Marine in Iraq. So I, you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like to have gone through that and, you know, done, done your work and tried to make a, you know, positive impact only to have it crumble to pieces and maybe end up worse than before you started. Like that's nightmarish. I mean, it's not as nightmarish as the people living in Iraq, obviously, but, you know, he's, he's not having a good time of it. And so he, he described that in detail in a voicemail that's already been played on the show. And the email that he sent in is very much along those lines. And, uh, and, you know, and, and he talked about how basically he's feeling r- incredibly burnt out on, on politics right now and is just sort of like ready to throw in the towel and just stop paying attention, stop caring. And, and it got me thinking about how, uh, I mean, just what I've heard people describe their feelings of, of, you know, how these stories like the ones we've heard in today's show how those stories make people feel. And, you know, I mean, we just heard from, uh, you know, a voicemailer talking about how, you know, he, he listened to the episode on white privilege right as he was feeling, you know, very upset about, uh, you know, about one of the deaths of, you know, a young black man and how he was feeling very emotional about that. And so the timing was not so great. It's not at all the same as, being frustrated about Iraq, but you can see a little bit of a parallel there. You can see how people, through whatever variety of issues, touch their lives most personally 
when things start to get real bad, it makes people feel really down on the world and politics in general. And so the advice I have for Wade is in a strange way, the same advice I would have for anyone who has those feelings of man, politics is really hard to pay attention to. It's so demoralizing. News is always so bad. It's, it's hard to, you know, keep the energy up. Um, and, and so, uh, here it is. Number one, uh, mental health breaks are not a personal failing. Uh, they should be required. Like anyone who pays attention on any level to politics, whether you work in it or are in the media or are just a consumer, like you have to unplug from it every once in a while. And, and frankly, I would, Take mental health breaks before you really need them. Uh, take them as often as, you know, is reasonable because this stuff is toxic. Like it, it's necessary, but it's, uh, it's really, really hard to deal with. Take a break. It's really important that when, uh, you know, if, if things get too bad, taking a break is much better than unplugging entirely and throwing in the towel. So so that's number one. Uh, Number two, uh, people have been asking me for years, how do you do this show and not go crazy? Um, You know, how do you, uh, just the the sheer volume of news that I have to consume. And honestly, for a couple of years, I didn't have a good answer. I, I didn't know the answer. I was like, oh, huh, that's a good question. Like, this should be driving me crazy, but it's, not that bad. So what's, what's going on? And it turns out the secret is to have an outlet for your frustrations. You know, having frustrations is 100% inevitable. So the key is to not just fill up with those frustrations until you boil over and like, you know, self-destruct. You have to have an outlet for your frustrations and, and, Sort of surprisingly, when I, when I say that to people, people then ask what my outlet is, and I say, well, it's the show. The show is not only a large source of my frustration, but it is also the outlet for those same frustrations. So whatever sort of outlet you can find for yourself, uh, I have found it to be an absolutely critical element in maintaining one's sanity. So between those two things, taking mental health breaks when you need them, or maybe even before you absolutely need them, and in the meantime, having an outlet to work out your frustrations uh, are you know, the two must-have, must-do things to be able to survive a, a life of paying attention to politics. And the thing is, like, we need you. You can't tap out. You know whether it's Wade or anyone else listening. Uh, as as Katie very eloquently said at the end of uh, today's activism segment, she was talking about uh, the white supremacy power structure in this country being deadly. But it goes for any issue, uh, and it's that it doesn't change until more than a minority of us stand up and demand justice. So that means. We need you. We need you to stay plugged in. We can't afford to have you give in to the temptation to just waste your life watching reality TV shows because the news is, you know, too depressing. 
you know, when you need to take a break, take a break. Better yet, take breaks before you need them. In the meantime, find a constructive outlet for your frustrations where you can see tangible progress. That, that's, that's the best kind, you know. The, the old uh, adage, uh, think globally, act locally. This is why we give activism opportunities on the show because it's, it's not just good for the world. It's good for you too to actually take action. But the types of things that we can talk about are, are so sort of big and broad and, and can apply to as many people as possible. You know, that's just a starting point. The best is to, you know, have something where you can do something on a, a smaller scale so that you can see, you know, the progress and the benefits that are happening thanks directly to your actions. So I say, you know, go out and do some good in the world, not just because you'll be doing good in the world, but because you'll be doing good for yourself and gaining the strength you need to carry on when things get bad. If you've thought about this sort of stuff yourself and have some, uh, words of wisdom or encouragement to share, I would love to hear them, uh, share them with the whole audience and we can, uh, you know, feel a little bit better about the world for a minute. Uh, the number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, uh, leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. I've set a goal to read a, a thousand new iTunes reviews and 300 total Stitcher reviews. So please help that happen by going to each of those directories, leaving a five-star review at your leisure, and donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash best of left is also an incredibly uh, easy and effective way to help. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained